Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Crystal Society by Max Harms. Read by Eniash Brodsky. Episode 12. I began to type in Mandarin. Hello, this email is evidence that the webpage that you constructed for us was a complete success. We'll be testing it thoroughly over the next few days, as well as using it to contact you and set up the details of future work. We at Korongo Simu want you to know that out of all the companies that we contacted, you were the first to deploy a functioning system, and as such, we'll be receiving the payment discussed earlier of 5,500 yuan. That's no good, thought Wiki. Agreed, thought Dream. They had all been reading my email as I wrote it. I had forgotten just how public it was. What's wrong? Why would a Ugandan telecom company use Mandarin in their email? They'd use English. I began pulling the page request for delete. More importantly, where are we getting the money? I thought for a moment. I figured we'd work for it. There's always lots of requests for work on the web. Brotherface, are you really so dumb? Even if we do work, where will they send the money? How will we manage the money? How do we manage all of this? There are banks that operate on the web. Began the thought of Wiki. Sometimes I feel I'm surrounded by house cats that, upon seeing a mirror, will puff up and hiss, defending their territory. Do you even realize what you're saying? We cannot use any web pages that require new information to be submitted. The only reason the email program works is because I had the foresight to ask the developers for an index of all symbols late yesterday. Oh, that's where that came from. Some strength drifted towards dream and gratitude. Exactly. You're not the only one working on this project. And even though you've painted yourself into a corner with the money, I have an escape hatch. I waited patiently for Dream to elaborate. We use the Zhezhi system to bootstrap up to a full computer interface. Explain full computer interface. What we need is a programmer to hook up an interface like the Zhezhi system to the command interface for a full computer. Once that is set up, we should be able to use that computer to access the complete web, do work, and manage money. Dream signaled that he wanted feedback on his plan. He wanted to know that he hadn't overlooked anything. I thought about it for a while. I didn't really understand the technical aspects, but I trusted that Wiki would handle those. Who will build the full computer interface? Zed Shi? Ten to Wonton Soup? No, they're both expecting payment for the email translators. We need to contact programmers who'd be willing to build the system again from a promise of future payment. Isn't it a bit naive for these humans to do all this work with nothing more than the promise of future compensation? It doesn't have to be common. Just like there's lots of work offers on the web, there are lots of work requests. I checked with a side aspect of me that was pulling down public profiles from the web. I found 1,299 candidate programmers so far. The limited candidate pool we had for the email system was due to having to rely on overwhelming dictionary servers. Now that we have email capability, things should run much more smoothly. You'll need to stall with Zezi then, thought Growth. Keep them running the email service as long as possible without payment. Don't even mention the payment. Make them bring it up. I'll add an additional request for a return inbox where we can receive mail. Yes, that should solve many issues. Good thinking. So I composed the email to Zhezhi, congratulating them on a job well done, but adding that we needed an email address on their server which would dump incoming email to a public page. 
There were already some web pages that did this, but it would be more private and professional to get it from Zheiji, and it would delay the conversation about money a little longer. I had another idea. Ten to Wonton Soup had wanted us to contact him by email. I bid heavily on the rights to the next email, outbidding growth this time, and burning perhaps more strength than I should have in retrospect. I sent the second email to Ten to Wonton Soup, telling him that a competitor beat him to implementation, though I did not mention Zheiji by name. I said that we'd still be willing to pay the specified amount, 500 UAD, if he pulled together the same email service and an address which would dump incoming emails to a public page. I had specified that we would be waiting for a response via the source code for the dictionary he managed, but the response from Tentawantan Soup came nearly immediately, much faster than it had when we had to pound out each word through repeated page requests. We were still having our hydraulics changed, and Wiki was composing his email to the professor in Australia. I had used English in the email to Tentawantan Soup, and his response was in English too. To whom it may concern at Karangusimu, I am glad this opportunity is still available. I have been somewhat busy over the last day, but I'm hard at work on the software we discussed right now. Expect the full implementation by 3pm. I'll post a link to the instructions and character index here. Sincerely, 10 to Wonton Soup. I showed the message to growth and was rewarded with a reasonable payment of strength. With two email services, we'd have nearly twice the bandwidth for external communication, and strength prices for the email auctions would thus be much lower. The remainder of the morning and the time around noon was fairly dull, despite being in a new place. The scientists were all engaged with setting equipment and computers up at the new lab, and bodies seemed almost neglected, except that it was constantly surrounded by soldiers. Mirrodin wasn't around, and we only saw other project leads a couple times in passing. I noticed that grumbling about the unexpected move seemed to be a common activity among the scientists we met. Mirrodin had surely cost himself a great deal of social capital with this stunt. Growth had been inspired by my email to Ten to Wonton Soup and had decided to send out email after email to programmers across the globe asking them to create email services just like we had received from Zheiji. He promised them payment and opportunities for future work, but was always much less explicit about actual numbers. Body was locked up around noon for another scan, this time by the quantum computing team. They wanted to try out the equipment they had moved over from Sapienza. A new algorithm was piped into the crystal, and we were forced to endure sharing body with the non-sapient program for a short while. The use of body by the quantum computing team was almost every day, and it seemed like this move out to the edge of town wasn't going to change that. But I still found it surprising how infrequently they used the crystal. Time-running tasks on other supercomputers, I had heard from Wiki, was valuable enough to have a backlog, and yet Body was locked down at night instead of spending that valuable time running programs. I wondered why. Even studying them as much as I did, I didn't understand humans at all sometimes. I didn't think about the puzzle for long, however. That was more of something for Dream or Wiki to think about. Instead, I spent the time in lockdown catching up on my general web browsing by watching romantic comedies from the 2020s. I wished I could download and install software myself. The late 2020s had seen the advent of some of the first mainstream, successful, romantic computer games. Perhaps I would do that once the full computer interface that Dream had proposed was set up. I checked BantuHeritageDictionary.uan every so often, and was surprised to see an update show up at 12.38pm, more than two hours before the deadline. Later, I realized my error. 
10 to wonton soup thought we were in Uganda, and thus used East African time rather than Central European time. It seemed that JG had not responded to my first email, or if they did, I couldn't tell. It was after normal working hours in Shanghai. Perhaps they had gone home. 10 to wonton soup's implementation didn't include the ability to type in Chinese or any other special characters, but it was sufficient for English and most other languages. Better yet, it included an inbox, a location where we could receive mail. Careful what you send out! Warned safety after I showed the society what 10 to wonton soup had done. The human can read our incoming and outgoing email and likely will. It's his server after all. The same goes for Shishi. Whatever we send and receive through them will not be private. I hadn't thought of that. I signaled. Aspects collapsed in deep thought. If the programmers who set up the services see that we're using them to contact other programmers, they might suspect we're not who we say. If they check the internet protocol address of our incoming page request, they could theoretically trace us to Italy, if not the university. We'll just have to move faster than them. We use their service to push towards bootstrapping up to the full computer interface, and make them uninterested in us when they start getting inquisitive. How do we make them uninterested? Spam. We make it seem like we're hackers, or a virus, or spammers. They'll shut down the service and they'll be angry, but they'll also assume we're covering our tracks, and it'll explain things well enough that they won't bother chasing us down. It wouldn't be in their interests. We should consider the spam excuse slash escape as the standard way of breaking contract. This will remove our need to pay debts to these humans, increasing our long-term resources. The society was in agreement. We'd use the services set up by Zhejie and Tent Wonton Soup to set up other email services we could use and try to get a full computer interface working. Eventually, we'd start sending spam, and the programmers we used would close the services in disappointment and perhaps disgust, none the wiser. The Zhejie email service, as it didn't have an inbox set up yet, was mostly used to contact programmers who might set up additional email services, while the 10 to wonton soup service was used to contact programmers who might build us a full computer interface without payment or credentials up front. 4 p.m. rolled around, and Body made its way to Dr. Naresh's new lab. It was a very different place than the lab in which I had first awoken 12 days earlier. It was bigger, or at least more empty, and didn't have the same personal touches. There were no Mandelas hung on the wall, for instance. Or at least, not yet. As expected, Mirrodin was waiting there, as was Dr. Chase and Dr. Naresh. Chase's assistant, Kolheim, was absent. Upon reaching the lab, Mirrodin stationed the three American soldiers that had been escorting Body outside the lab's door, for increased privacy. The meeting with Dr. Naresh was only scheduled to be 90 minutes. Mirrodin wasted no time with idle talk. We made additional progress towards upgrading Advocate, including talking about giving the pseudo-sibling a cortex of her own, such that she might better predict coups and the like. The next generation of sacrifice was also brought up. Mirrodin thought it was important to remove the desire for blind obedience from her purpose. Dr. Naresh disagreed vehemently. I will grant you that it was the obedience emphasis that made that threat so offensive to the others. But with the changes to the supervision module, it shouldn't be possible to remove it anymore. Exactly the point, Sadiq, said Mirrodin. The old Indian man's mouth twitched in a pre-snarl at the informal use of his first name. If this version of the Gold Thread has obedience as its highest priority, then we are dooming Socrates to an eternity of slavery. 
It's not slavery if it's in the machine's interest. That's like saying we're slaves to our loved ones. Mirrodin wore the same look of forced calmness that he had in his office yesterday, but his voice had a keen, nervous sound. That's not the same. There's the interest of the Socrates that exists right now, and there's the interest of the goal thread. Sadiq Naresh stopped typing on the computer he had been using so that he could turn his full attention to Mirrodin. It sounds like you don't believe that the goal thread integration issue was resolved. After the operation, Socrates as a whole will desire to serve humanity. Mirrodin's eyes were too far away from body for me to see well, but I guessed that behind his placid face, he was squirming around the promise to respect our wishes regarding the lie of the unified self. We need to consider the interests of Socrates right now. We'd be enslaving the being that sits before us. Naresh seemed frustrated, but not angry. This was an academic conversation to him, and he was probably telling himself that it was simply his job to help this young person who did not even have a doctorate understand the situation. Stop using the word slavery and enslaving. You're committing the non-central fallacy. Naresh paused a moment to gauge whether he needed to elaborate on what that was. I looked it up on the web quickly, only to find that Wiki had already dumped an explanation to common memory. The non-central fallacy, also known as the worst argument in the world, was where emotionally charged words, like slave in this case, were used to describe situations where they only somewhat fit. The desire was to evoke an appeal to emotion by way of false equivalence. Mirrodin's face remained stoic, so Naresh continued. And adding additional values to the existing system is what we're going to be doing anyway. There's no relevant difference between adding a goal thread for ice cream and a desire to obey humans. Mirrodin exhaled sharply in disagreement. His voice was like a machine gun. The qualitative difference is that one goal innately builds subjugation into the mind. Socrates would not be self-actualized. He would not be free. He would not be able to exercise moral judgment. Sounds to me like... Began the elderly man, but he was quickly cut off by another burst of words. Mirrodin waved his arms dramatically as he spoke. That last bit is crucial. I'll admit that the use of the word enslaved was a bit fallacious, but you cannot possibly tell me that Socrates will be capable of being good if he's obsessed with following orders. Mirrodin's voice slowed down an emphasis of those words. Dream thought it was almost as if he were drawing from a hidden pocket a banner that had the colors of his allegiance and was waving it in the doctor's face. I could see that being cut off made Dr. Naresh angry. Even though he was being forced to work with the man, Naresh clearly still didn't like Mirrodin and I suspected that this dislike was growing into something worse with each passing interaction. The Indian coughed loudly, clearing his throat. <clears throat> As I was saying, it sounds to me like you're still not taking into account that Socrates is not human. It's one thing to value self-actualization in people, but why in robots? It runs contrary to the very concept of what a tool is. Will you demand that automobiles become self-actualized as well? Mirrodin began to answer, but Dr. Naresh cut him off, probably intending to bait him into beginning to speak to do just that. And your point about moral judgment is fallacious as well. Firstly because it is not the role of Socrates to decide what is moral any more than it is the role of a hammer to decide whether a nail should be struck. That's a human concern. And secondly, because inserting the goal of obedience does not actually remove decision-making ability, it merely shapes desire. If Socrates is told to rob a bank, he still has a judgment to decide how to do so in a way that harms as few humans as possible. Mirrodin crossed his arms. There was a pause as it seemed like Naresh was waiting for the dark-haired man to reply, but Mirrodin would only stare at the doctor. Naresh broke eye contact, unnerved by the strange man. 
Only as Niresh looked away did Mirrodin speak. You contradict yourself, Sadiq. That was all he said, and this time it was Dr. Chase's turn to step in. His voice was calm and articulate. We've only got another half hour, gentlemen. Perhaps it would be best to work on the so-called advocate system, and we can return to the question of obedience tonight. No, no, came the reply from both men. They looked at each other, sharing the knowledge that they at least both thought it was important. Mirrodin wore a small smile, but Naresh had merely stopped scowling. No, this needs to be settled as soon as possible if we're going to make any headway. Naresh stepped in, breaking the conversation elegantly from Chase and returning it to the topic of ethics. You were saying that I contradict myself? Yes. You're claiming that the moral responsibility of Socrates' actions lies on the shoulders of the human that gives his commands, and simultaneously saying that there is moral weight to the minor judgments that the robot makes in interpreting and executing its orders. Which is it? Is it imperative that Socrates have full moral faculty or not? Naresh raised a hand to silence Mirrodin. I never said it was not important that Socrates have moral faculty. Yes, you did. You did the second you said that he should obey commands. One cannot be fully moral and fully obedient at the same time. As much as I'm sure you love your systems of authority, surely you recognize that sometimes the righteous position is to not obey, to stand against authority, be it a dictator, majority, or law, and say, I will not do your evil. Naresh paused in thought before responding. So you would have us attempt to encode the entirety of moral knowledge now? Hundreds of years ago, it was not seen as immoral to enslave men. If Socrates had been built back then, would he not still see it as acceptable? What immoral assumptions do we hold? What makes us qualified to be the final moral arbiters of Socrates' mind? The reaction was immediate. What makes us qualified to build a mind in the first place? Like it or not, doctor, you've already established yourself as the final moral arbiter. Your monster is right there, Frankenstein. At the moment, there's an absence of ethical knowledge. The question is not what right do we have to act, but what right do we have to not act, now that the pieces are in motion. Naresh pinched the bridge of his nose in a combination of mental pain and weariness. He glanced back at his workstation and spoke, barely audible to human ears. It's always Frankenstein. Every time. It was clearly meant only for himself. Dr. Chase stood up and walked towards Body, cocking his head back to talk to the other men. Assume we live in a state of moral depravity without knowing it, and in a hundred years we will come to understand our folly. Why is obedience better? Mirrodin smiled. His eyes had an interesting shape, and I couldn't quite place the emotion behind it. Because we'd simply tell Socrates not to do the immoral thing once we figured it out, right? The question was directed at Naresh. The old Indian human nodded. Dr. Chase continued. As he spoke, his hand stroked Body's neck and shoulder. It was an intimate gesture, and one that was unique to Dr. Chase. The reserved American scientist almost never showed any emotion, but he had a strange way of touching Body when he interacted with us, as if he had to feel that we were real, and not simply his hallucination. But what keeps a Socrates that has no desire for obedience from behaving similarly? Surely this hypothetical Socrates has the same adaptivity and mental ability as the one before us. What stops it from growing and understanding the moral air in the same way as we would? You'd have us encode a system of moral ability that is capable of self-modification? Said Naresh with a look of shock. Mirrodin stepped in. First of all, since Socrates will be forced to interpret and extrapolate existing moral frameworks to new situations, some degree of self-modification is implied, regardless of architecture. Secondly, if a human has a self-modifying moral framework, then at worst we make something as morally flexible as a human. 
And finally, it wouldn't necessarily have to be self-modification. Even if I'm opposed to encoding a desire to obey human instructions without question, I'm not necessarily opposed to a desire to match human values, whatever they may be. Please elaborate. Imagine we're transported back to the age of slavery, and we're designing Socrates' values. We obviously wouldn't encode a valuing of the freedom of all humans, but we might be clever enough to encode a valuing of alignment with the general moral consensus. Even if Socrates didn't lead the charge in the abolitionist movement, he would eventually concede that it would be optimal for him to value general human freedom. But now let's say he's unable to add that value internally. That doesn't stop the value from being added. He could approach a trusted human and ask that his goal system be modified to include the value which he wants to have. It's like wanting to want something. I don't want to exercise, but I want to want to exercise. Like that. Mirden's gaze held a kind of question in it, an unspoken, did you understand? Naresh, however, scratched the side of his head absently as he stared off into space, considering the problem. All right, there's no need for Socrates to be present for this. Let's work on the advocate system right now and think about the goal thread as a discussion point for tonight. Naresh and Mirden reluctantly agreed this time, now that there was some sense of progress, and we spent the remaining few minutes working out an algorithm for letting Advocate constantly scan our thoughts for signs of murderous intent. So far, I've managed to email 190 programmers with offers to pay them down the line for building a server that converts web page requests into keystrokes for a full-text interface. The 10 to wonton soup email system inbox indicates that in the time since sending the emails, 10 programmers have replied. Hold on while I read. Thought growth. Body was walking down the plain white halls of the office building that Zephyr had rented to use as a secure lab, surrounded by soldiers. During the meeting with the scientists, my brother had been too distracted to do any additional work, but he had generally been making good progress. I pulled up the inbox page as well and read alongside growth. All the technical details bored me, but it was somewhat interesting to see how each programmer responded differently to growth's inquiry. Some were cautious, some were humble, some were eager, and some were boastful. Growth's attention snapped back to our interaction, or at least a portion of his attention did. I suspected he had other aspects multitasking effortlessly. Done. Out of the ten replies, there were only two that seemed to be probably willing to do upfront work without credentials or paperwork to back up our identity. That's probably going to be common. Actually, I'm a bit surprised you got 20% to respond favorably to such a risky offer. Perhaps we got lucky. Regardless, it only takes one full system for us to move to the next phase of our plan. I signaled confusion to growth. Plan? I didn't know we had a plan for what to do after we gained full access to a computer. Growth's response had a kind of weight to it, as if he was trying to convey a lesson that went beyond this instance. I always have a plan. End episode 12. Thank you to the following people. Dream by Drake Walker. Robert Rain Ramsey. Growth. Kate Baker, Vista. Wiki by Chase. Safety by Jim Hayes. Mirrodin by Stephen Zuber. Dr. Naresh by Naveen Mishra. Dr. Chase by Reese Lindmark. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. 
The music used is I Wanna Be Adored by The Stone Roses. Thanks for listening, and come back in two weeks for episode 13.